Hello and welcome to Beth Takoon and the Spiritual Season series, where we are exploring how the Torah portions fit into the pattern of salvation in the year. <clears throat> this week we are in the double portion of Matot Masse, the final seven chapters of Numbers, or the book of Bamidbar. Parsha Matot begins with Moses talking to the heads of the tribes, which is where the name comes from. Matot is one of the Hebrew words for tribes. Moses tells the tribal heads various commandments related to making oaths and vows to the Lord. We saw a number of commandments in Leviticus establishing that God will not be treated lightly by human beings. You can't dedicate an animal to God, for example, and then decide to substitute another animal. Both become holy. You can't make a vow to God and then go back on it. That's not how you treat God. For men, if they make a vow, that's it. It's final. For women, on the other hand, they have an extra layer of authority between themselves and God, and that is the men. And so God gives certain um, cases in which the men have permission to annul the vow of a daughter or a wife. In the next chapter, God instructs Moses to take vengeance on Midian. The combined nations of the Midianites and Moabites had taken Balaam's advice to seduce Israel into idolatry, resulting in a plague that killed thousands, right? 24,000. Moses, you know, in responding to God's command to take vengeance on Midian, musters 1,000 fighting men from each tribe, and so he takes 12,000 men into battle against Midian, with Phinehas leading them. They completely decimate the Midianites, and they actually acquire a lot of wealth in the process. The final topic in Matot is the agreement with Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. We sometimes call these the Transjordan tribes. Um, and so an agreement is made here that they can receive their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan, provided that the men cross over with the other tribes to fight for the land, right? They can't settle early on the east side and not go in and help to fight for the land. They have to do that. And so they agree to do that. Massey, continuing on in the portions here, means the journeys of. So the portion begins with a recounting of the various encampments in the 40-year wilderness journey, 42 stops in all. Grant points out that we too make a 42-stop journey every day, every day that we say the Shema, that is, because the main part of the Shema is composed of 42 words in Hebrew. Well, next in Masay, we have the enumeration of the boundaries of the land. And then we have the commandment to give the Levites cities with the surrounding pasture lands. And interestingly, speaking of the number 42, the Levites are given 42 cities in the land. But then added to those are six cities of refuge for a total of 48. The laws pertaining to the cities of refuge are also given here in this chapter in Masay. And then the final topic of the whole book of Numbers is the conclusion to the story of the daughters of Zelophehad. And so remember that they had previously asked if they could inherit their father's portion in the land because he had no sons. And so an allowance was made for them, provided that they marry within their father's tribe. And so here in this portion, as the final topic of the book of Bamidbar, Bamidbar, we learn that they, in fact, marry quite closely within their father's clan, and so they can receive their father's inheritance, and they also will keep that inheritance within the tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. Well, there's certainly a lot happening in this double portion, but before we go deeper, let's Notice that in both of these parshas, God is clearly giving final instructions and leading the nation through final preparations before they cross the river and head into the land. God again tells Moses here that before um, 
he tells Moses before he sends the nation against Midian that after this battle, he will be gathered to his people, right? An idiom for dying. So the death of Moses will be the end of this era for the nation. We're coming close to that. In a way, the story of the Exodus ends here at the conclusion of the book of Bamidbar. And that's because the final book of the Torah, Deuteronomy or Devarim, is a little different from the first four. It's a long speech that Moses delivers to the people over the course of some days while they are camped on the east side of the Jordan. Deuteronomy is Moses' repetition of the Torah. It's actually sometimes called the beginning of the oral Torah. So here we come to the end of what we might call a written Torah. or a, It's all written Torah, but um, Deuteronomy being coming from out of Moses' mouth is, is almost the beginning of the oral Torah. And so here at the end of, of Numbers, we kind of have an end to, to the Torah in, in its initial giving. And, and it's the end of the story of the formation of the Jewish people. And so as we turn now to connecting these portions to the calendar, let's start with going a bit deeper with the meaning of the names, as we usually do. So as we said earlier, one meaning of matot is tribes, and masse essentially means journeys. We'll see that these two names fit closely together, and we would expect that from two portions that are read together in most years. And so let's talk about matot. There are two ways, actually, to say tribe in the Torah. And so in some situations, they are, they're called shevatim, and in others, they're called matot, as, as they are here. And so these two names carry different connotations. Both of these words also mean branch. And so the tribes are branches that grow from the trunk of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. But the two words for tribe, describe, and branch, describe two different kinds of branches. A shevet is a branch that is still supple. It's flexible because it still has the sap of life in it. So it's either still attached to the tree or it has just recently been cut off of the tree. A mate, on the other hand, is a cut branch that has dried out. It it no longer has sap in it, and it's become hardened. And so the connection to the trunk and the roots is distant. It's, it's, I don't think we can say absent, but we can say that um, it's it's a long time ago that it was separated from the trunk of the tree and the roots. So this might seem negative and It is negative in a way, but in another way, the mate is really the goal of the shevet. The goal is not to stay attached to the tree and just keep getting bigger there on the tree for no reason, you know, just blocking the sun. The purpose is to eventually be cut off when the time is right so that the wood can be used by a human being. When the wood becomes hard, its shape is fixed permanently, but it becomes strong enough to be leaned upon. So it becomes the tool a person needs to take a journey. Remember that one of the meanings of mate is staff. Um, In fact, I think both of these words, shevet and mate, uh, I think they both can mean staff as well. And so while mate speaks to a kind of a separation, it also speaks to a kind of maturity It speaks to finding one's place to contribute in the world, right? That set form, all the other flexible possibilities, they're gone. This is where you belong in the world. This is how you can be of service in the world. So there's a connection here between matot and masse, the walking stick and the journey. Somehow matot and masse are really two sides of one coin, and as we would expect from two portions that are read together, usually. So how do the cut-off stick 
and the journey relate to each other? Well, first, we are cut loose from our roots to some degree anyway. There's always the memory there. And then we journey with God. It's the journey of adulthood that we've just been talking about. We have to be cut loose from the family as we start that journey into adulthood. And if we're walking with the Lord, we will grow stronger and stronger over the course of that journey in the dark world, and we will achieve the fixed form that we are meant to have, which again is our specific role in the world. The ideas I'm describing here connected to these words matot and masse can all be collected together under one important word, one concept we encounter over and over again in Scripture. And that word is exile. We're going to do a bit of a deep dive today into this biblical idea of exile from from a spiritual season's perspective. And uh, part of what I want us to see is that, yes, exile is a place of correction, but it's, it's much more than that. It's also our final growth context. It's both the punishment that cleanses and the forge that strengthens us. Exile goes hand in hand with maturity. It's a regular part of the development process, right? We think of exile as, oh, they messed up. They went into exile. They suffered there. Finally, they got to come back. No, exile is a regular part of the development process that God builds in. And we should welcome it when it comes. And it's not only a part of the development process, but it comes at the end as we are becoming most mature. And so we'll also talk about if it comes at the end, and we are not at the end of the calendar now, we'll talk about why we're talking about this in these portions now, in the fourth month, rather than the 11th month or the 12th month. So before we move forward... Let's do a little more work establishing that the subtext here in these portions really is exile. It, it's more than just this connection to the word matot. Um, and so Rabbi Raskin, it's, it's, in fact, it's what the rabbis say. The rabbis make this connection to, to exile. Rabbi Raskin, in discussing matot, says, when the Jewish people were in Israel or they were united in the desert. At that time, they were called Shevatim because they were still connected to the source and they still retained the moisture and the sap of the tree of Moses and the forefathers. However, when a Jew goes into Golis, into exile, they're compared to a stick, a staff that is dried out because they could no longer recall their roots and they no longer feel the sap and the moisture of their heritage. So in this quote, Rabbi Raskin is connecting this word mato to exile in these portions to exile. And um, by doing that, since this is the title of the first portion, you know, he's really connecting this idea of exile to the entire portion and to the whole double portion. Um, it has to, something to do with exile. And speaking of evidence pointing us toward the theme of exile here, did you notice that both the Haftarah, if you read it, and the Brit Hadashah reading, if you read that one, had this very strong reprimanding tone, this this closing in of boundaries, right? This din, this judgment. Jeremiah 2, the Haftarah, is, is one long rebuke of Israel for straying. And Mark 11 contains another account, as in last week, which was, I believe, from the Gospel of John. But this one is another account of Yeshua overturning tables at the temple and speaking words of strong rebuke. So what are the sages seeing in these portions that's leading them to choose a half-Torah portion of rebuke? On the surface, you wouldn't really see that. Uh, Matot and Masay seem quite positive. You know, they're looking ahead to the life in the land, the final instructions, the recounting of the wilderness journey and its 42 stops, the delineation of the borders, the laws of inheriting land. 
the Haftorah connection seems unclear. Like, why is this so focused on rebuke and, and exile, really? Um, and it's um, a connection that would be really hard to see if you don't know of this difference in how these words matot and shevatim are used. Well, another push um, that's you know, pushing us toward this concept of exile here is the calendar. It could be that the calendar was one of the prime considerations for choosing the Jeremiah passage as the Haftarah. These portions are read during the three weeks, which we now find ourselves in the middle of. Once again, the three weeks start with the fast of the 17th of Tammuz and end with the fast of the 9th of Av. And so these fasts, along with the other fasts that have been added to the calendar, progressively tell the story of exile, right? Um, The 17th of Tammuz specifically remembers the breaching of Jerusalem's walls by the Romans, right? Surrounded by the Romans, they finally break through the walls on the 17th of Tammuz. And the 9th of Av is the day that both of the temples were destroyed. And so these are two important steps in the process of being taken into exile. So the calendar is also pushing us to see exile in these portions that are read during the three weeks. Well, let's spend some time now uh, thinking about this important idea of goalless, which is the Hebrew word for exile. It's among the most dominant themes in all of Scripture, and I think we miss something important when we just approach it as being mere punishment, that they just have to suffer through. God doesn't want his people to just suffer, you know, God forbid. Um, With God, there's no such thing as mere punishment. Certainly exile is a kind of death, and death has been our main topic for these summer Torah portions. But like I've been saying several times now, Death is the doorway of new life. And again, exile is this context for the final growth stage. Exile exists to be overcome, to be transcended. And as we overcome it, even while we're in it, it becomes our best classroom and our best means of being drawn near to God. Exile is a time when God has hidden himself a bit, as in the Purim story. Remember that Purim story happens while they are in the exile of Persia. And this hiding of God allows us to be immersed in in a much more physical environment, a much darker environment. And that's our great opportunity to shine in the darkness. It's our chance to be tested and to prove ourselves faithful in that testing. It's one thing to be faithful to God when you're surrounded by believers, but it's quite another to stay faithful when almost everyone around you is pushing you to deny him, even threatening you and persecuting you. And so this is why it's associated with maturity, the final stages of development. You're taken out of that easy belief situation and you're put in the much more difficult more difficult to be faithful, to stay faithful situation. You know, the prophet Daniel and his friends had to stand up to the dominant culture while in exile. And um, and time and time again, they had to stand up to this, this peer pressure. And through it all, they grew into spiritual giants, right, as they stayed faithful. So let's go a couple of layers deeper into this idea of exile now as we try to connect these ideas in the portions to the concept of Golas. The discussion is going to take us a bit into the weeds here, but it's an important one because exile is an important element in the yearly calendar and God's overall pattern of salvation. One aspect we need to, to recognize about exile that I don't think we generally do understand is that exile is not necessarily connected to the land of Israel. We automatically think, oh, you go out of the land, that's exile. That's not quite right. So Israel can actually be in exile even while they are in the land. Golis doesn't necessitate leaving the land. 
So let me give a couple of examples of, of this. The Jewish people in our times have been recollected in the land, right? There's more uh, Jewish people living in the land than there are uh, living in any other single place, including America now. Um, but yet everybody says that this long Roman exile continues. They're in the land, yet the exile continues. So why do they say that? Well, it's because outside forces are still ruling over Israel, both in terms of kind of the secular part of Israel and in terms of Israel's inability to rebuild the temple. It's said that the rebuilding of the temple is what will happen when the 2,000-year-long Roman exile comes to a close. And so a second example of this, one of the four exiles is the exile of Greece, which we read about in the Hanukkah story. Well, was Israel taken captive to Greece during this time? No, they were not. They remained in the land but they were ruled by Greece at that time, and Greece was imposing the Greek culture on Israel. So if Israel is not dependent on geographic location, what is the essence of exile? And so this is important. Exile is any movement from a place of spirituality and light to a place of greater physicality and darkness, right? You move there and you stay there. Goalless happens anytime we take a step into deeper darkness and settle there. It's a relative thing. When Israel was being ruled by Greece, Greece was imposing its worldview on the nation. And that worldview included a great emphasis on the glorification of the human body. For Israel, this was a step into physicality and darkness, even though they remained in the land. Right? They were going into exile while they were in the land. In this, in, this, you know, in this case of the Greek exile, the darkness came to them. Well, in our own day, the current Golis of Rome continues because a large portion of Israel is secular. They might be in the land, but their hearts are in Rome. With all of Rome's sensuality, and slavery to the flesh, right? Physicality, entering into this darkness of physicality. That's what exile is. And we can say that anyone who is living a secular life is in that place. And so the rebuilding of the temple is just the outcome that will happen when the hearts of the Israeli people are unified as one to stand against the world culture and embrace the truth. Well, now you might say that we are always moving from light to darkness and back to light again and back to darkness. Well, indeed, this is very natural for us. We do this every day. Every day we move into nighttime. And we do this every month with the waning of the moon. And we do this every year with the winter side of the calendar. Each of these, you know, on every level, God has built in a light side and a dark side. And so the physical and the darkness, if they're part of every level and every cycle, they're not inherently evil. Um, entering into physicality is not inherently evil. We're not, in fact, we are supposed to embrace the physical world, which God has created. Why did he create it for us if, if we're supposed to shun it? We are hybrid creatures that are both spiritual and physical. And um, rather than shunning it, we are meant to fully embrace the physical so that we can raise it up and elevate it to use it for spiritual purposes. And in that way, make this physical stuff into a home for God as we become echad with him here. So in other words, we are supposed to embrace the physical world so that we can elevate it and we grow in that process. The fact that we are constantly doing this shows us that exile is an inevitable and good part of the process of maturity. And so this idea of exile being an entering into physicality is how it can be that these Torah portions that are looking ahead 
to the settling of the land have exile as their subtext, you know, somewhat ironically. We, we think of exile as going out of the land, but it's not really that. It's going into physicality. And so it's kind of an irony that the, this, these portions focused on going into the land is actually for this generation going into exile because um, it's a comparative thing. It's kind of a unique thing for this generation. For this generation that is born in the wilderness, entering the land is entering the veil of the physical. And so the Quixote Comish commentary on Parsha Massey, it says this. It says this very idea. It says the safe and sequestered life of the desert of seclusion in a totally spiritual environment, this is what the commentary says, naturally encourages spiritual growth. Of course, it is possible to stagnate in a spiritual environment as well, but the main challenge to remaining spiritually alive is in the settled land of mundane material living. And when we're challenged, we grow. The main challenge is in the mundane. And so the Quixote Comish is, is saying here that you grow spiritually in the elevated wilderness, but you'll grow even more when you are challenged more by the mundane life in the land. And so at the end of the book of Bamidbar, we're looking forward to Israel's entrance into the land. And for this generation that has grown up in the spiritual training ground of the wilderness, ironically, they are preparing for exile, the exile of the mundane, the place of permanent homes and fields that are allotted to each family and sowing and reaping rather than receiving each morning the bread of heaven from the hand of God. The challenge for this generation is to step down from the exalted state of the wilderness, right? The peak of Mount Sinai even that kicks off the wilderness experience. They are to step down from the wilderness experience and into the land, and they're to cleanse the land. They're to cleanse the body and elevate it. That's the final stage of development for this generation. And I know it's a bit hard to wrap our heads around the idea that moving into the land can be a kind of exile, but for this generation, that is the case. The testings will be very different for them in the land, and the growth they experience there is the growth of maturity. So if exile is associated with entering the darkness, then that's a clue to where we especially find the energy of exile in the calendar, because the yearly calendar has a bright side and a dark side. So we've alluded to this before. The dark half of the year, starting in the seventh month, is when the length of the night is greater than the length of the day. So that's when the energy of exile is starting to dominate in the year. Though, obviously, we can see some of that energy before we get to the seventh month. And, you know, haven't we been saying that the second half of the year is when we are achieving maturity? That is when God has taken a step back from us you know, he puts on his winter clothing, so to speak. It's a little harder to sense him. And um, speaking of exile as a latter stage of development, look at Israel's history. Why is it that the final two millennia of Israel's historical development, right, the latter times, the maturing times, the maturing time of the year is the winter, and in world history, in Israel's history, it's these final two millennia where Israel is experiencing its final stages of maturity. All of that happens in the context of the Roman exile. And that's because exile is the context for becoming mature. Okay, I keep saying that. Well, if Golis is emphasized in the second half of the calendar, why are we talking about it now, in the fourth month? Well, for one thing, these portions are looking ahead to another time, the time of settling the land. But secondly, we're, we're getting the seeds of exile now. In fact, the daily darkness actually started 
growing at the summer solstice, which was near the end of June, usually the June 21st, June 22nd. And so the nights already started growing longer, you know, some three weeks ago now. Um, Though they are not yet dominating the day, the day is still a lot longer than the night right now. But the energy took a shift at that time, such that the darkness started to grow and the daytime started to get less and less. And so um, we're getting the seeds now. This shift happened three weeks ago, and we're getting, just getting you know, the seeds of the exile that will blossom later in the year fully. And so every season, I keep talking about seeds in, um, in each season, and that's because every season has its own harvest. And by saying harvest, we really mean seed, what we're harvesting, what those plants are trying to do when they are producing what it is that we want to eat is they are making seeds. And in some cases, they're surrounding those seeds with flesh, you know, fruits and vegetables. In some cases, it's just the naked seed. And we we like to eat that too. It's called wheat or it's called barley. And so the physical harvest associated with these months right now The seed that is literally coming in now in Israel is the grape harvest. And um, so that begins in June in Israel. And what do grapes have to do with anything? Well, it's really amazing how God makes all these things work together. Grapes that are crushed, um, they're, they're crushed to be made into wine. And the crushed grape is symbolic of blood and of death. An exile really is a kind of death, although its end goal is coming back together and life and joy, the joy of Purim, right? And the wine of Purim, that's the end goal. Yeshua says, as he compares wine to, um, to blood, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, right? The blood he was about to shed in death was the inauguration of the new covenant. So he compares there once again his blood to a cup of wine made from the crushed grape. And so we are now experiencing the early beginnings, the seed of blood, the bloody seed, we could say, of of exile and of separation in the calendar, seeds that will produce something greater over time. And so let's add one more layer to the topic of exile. If we zoom out to the broadest perspective for for all of us, for each of us, when our spirit left the heavenly realm and entered into our bodies, it went into exile because it left the realm of light and of spirituality and entered the realm of the darkness of physicality, which is this world. The mystics call this place, right, this world, the realm of separation. Though our task here is to put the pieces back together here and make it a place of echad. In other words, from one perspective, our entire life here on earth is a journey of exile. And can't you just feel that in your bones? We're all becoming experts here in the life of thriving in exile, the life of putting the broken pieces back together and transcending exile even. And we know that God strengthens us in our walk here as we are separated to a degree from our source, which is him. In fact, in this exile of earth, we are becoming stronger and stronger the longer we are separated from our source just like a stick does as it continues to dry out. If we are walking with him here, then we are growing stronger as we stand up for him in this darkness. Well, let me just finish this section with another brief quote from the Quixote Komish, which also makes this point that our souls are in a place of exile on earth. Spiritually, it says, this is the quote, It says, spiritually, Shevet, right, that other word for tribes, can be considered to refer to the soul before it descended into the body, 
when it was fully conscious of divinity and its own connection to its source. Mate would then refer to the soul as it has entered the body and lost this conscious connection, at least temporarily. And, you know, there the Kihok Komish is saying, temporarily we lose that connection, but we are to regain that connection in exile. And that's our challenge here, to transcend exile. And um, so back to the quote, uh, Mate would then refer to the soul as it has entered the body and lost this conscious connection, at least temporarily, and been charged with elevating the body and the portion of reality under its purview. In such a state, we must evince the inflexibility of a hardened stick in our devotion to principles and resistance to evil. If successful, we can face the challenges of life confidently and proceed to fulfill our purpose on earth and make reality into the home for God it was intended to be. So that's the end of that quote there. You know, just reaffirming for us the idea that our souls go into exile when they come to this place. We're all walking together this journey of exile. Well, changing gears just for a bit, let's ask the practical question. If these portions at the end of Bamidbar are speaking to us about this wilderness generation going into a kind of exile as they go into the land, what does this list of topics in these portions have to teach us about thriving in exile and really overcoming exile and transcending exile and growing? Well, let's start with the topic of vows, which is the first topic in Matot. What, um, what gets in the way of us keeping a vow to the Lord? It's when we take our eye off the realm of truth off the spiritual, and we place our focus on the physical, that we begin to doubt and we forsake a vow, maybe. When God says, you absolutely must keep your vows to me, one thing he's saying is, don't take your eye off of what's real. Don't let the tangible world, right? You get thrust into a more physical environment, and that's, that is exile. And he's saying, okay, you can get thrust into that more physical environment, and that's what I will do for you. But don't take your eye off of what is real. And don't let that tangible world flood in and overwhelm you. Stay faithful so that you don't doubt me. So lesson number one for thriving in the exile of the physical world, keep your eye on what's real. And we do that by filling our lives with truth, with Torah, with friends and teachers and community who also see what's real, right? When we begin to doubt, that is when we are prone to breaking vows to him. So let me just add here that a vow actually holds great power for us in exile. And vows, in fact, can be used to strengthen us. When we you know, there's a side to a vow that is, is not so great, right? The sages say, why should you add any more to you than what the Torah has added? But there's another side to that. And when we recognize how seriously God takes our vows to him, when we realize the great consequences of breaking a vow to him, then we can find a powerful motivation for staying on the path of the vow. Right? If I make this vow, I'm going to do everything I can to stay on that path because I know this is a really important thing to God and the consequences are dire for breaking it. So, for someone struggling with addiction, for example, it can be very helpful to make a vow to add this onto whatever else the Torah has already given you because you're desperate. So, this is another lesson we're taking from vows. If you find that in your exile, you really slip into the belly of the pit, a temporary extra vow to the Lord, you know, along with begging him and asking him to to fill you with the strength to fulfill the vow to him, that can be a lifeline. It's pretty extreme move. Um, But let's note from the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul apparently took two Nazarite vows Um, 
for two different reasons. And those are just the ones that we know about, these two records of two Nazarite vows. We read about the first in Acts 18. We don't think about this one too much, but we read there that he cuts his hair in Sancria because we're told that he was under a vow, and we're not given any more information about what that was about. But then again, we read about him taking a second vow, a Nazarite vow, in Acts 21, for a different reason. It's when the elders um, there in Jerusalem wanted him to show that he was not standing against the Torah, who apparently taking this vow was a way that he could show people, look, I'm really serious about the Torah. Um, And so here we see Paul taking advantage of making a vow to the Lord, not once but twice. Well, let's take another uh, topic here, God's commandment to take vengeance on Midian. Well, Midian means strife or contentiousness. Israel decimates this enemy, and God commands Israel to decimate this enemy. The sages specifically connect Midian to the idea of baseless hatred, right? Sinat Kinam. Israel has done nothing to provoke Midian in the affair of Peor, right? When Balaam gives that advice, there, the Midianite and Moabite hatred of Israel doesn't have a good basis. They just wanted to go through and get into the land to pass through. Well, baseless hatred is also what the sages say caused the destruction of the second temple. And so, which is connected to the ninth of Av and the cycle of exile. So this topic of Midian in particular has strong connections to exile. Yeshua's generation was one that was fighting internally between such groups as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were just filled with this baseless hatred, this Midianite spirit of baseless hatred. And that is what is said led to the destruction of the second temple. Yeshua has many harsh words for that generation. So here's a lesson for thriving in exile. Do whatever you can to get along with your brothers and sisters who are journeying in exile with you. Focus on what you have in common rather than what you don't have in common with them. We have so much more in common with all of humanity than we than the differences we have. So focusing on the differences tends to lead to that baseless hatred. Let your thinking be filled with grace toward your fellow travelers. Rabbi Raskin tells a joke that applies equally to the Christian world, probably more so to the Christian world as to the Jewish world. He, he tells the, the joke of a single Jewish man who is the lone survivor of a shipwreck, and he swims to a deserted island. Years later, when he is rescued, he proudly shows his rescuers the wonderful structures he managed to build using the simple materials available to him, you know, Gilligan's Isle, Island um, style, including not one, but two synagogues. And so two synagogues, they question him when they rescue him. Why did you need two? And his answer is, the first was for me to pray in, and the second was the one I'll never step foot in, right? So there was, And I distinctly remember that growing up in the church that I did, what a foreign feeling another church had for me. It just felt like another world. And so we fracture for so many stupid reasons. It's baseless hatred, really. Exile is about putting pieces back together, not the petty differences that divide us. Find a way to make it work, partly for your own survival. We're stronger when we are together. Recognize that much of our internal hatred is baseless and show no mercy to that internal enemy of Midian, right? Show it no mercy. Cut it off. Well, one, uh, on the topic of, you know, moving forward in the text to another topic, the, the, the two and a half 
tribes that we call the Transjordan tribes. Uh, the point I want to make here is, again, that we need to have grace for each other in this journey of exile. It's not an easy journey. You yourself know how hard it is, <laughs> this journey in this world, this life. It's a journey that is fraught with many obstacles and many temptations and many trials and many ways to get a bit off track. And so don't cut people off just because maybe they made a decision that, you know, you think maybe lacked some wisdom. First of all, maybe you're the one that's wrong. Clearly there was something deeply seated in these tribes that pulled them to the territory east of the Jordan. And we kind of get that sense because we know that they all had something in common. All of these ones that settle, settle on the east, they have something in common, and it is that they are the firstborn of their mothers. And that includes the tribe of Dan, which later migrates, at least part of the tribe migrates, to the east of the Jordan, but to the north of the, the Transjordan tribes. And they settle alongside with Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So there's something deep. There are deep movements of the soul at work here that we are not privy to. Does their decision reflect a fault in them, a kind of you know, baser attraction to that which is lower, a willingness to settle for a lesser goal, right? I know God prepared the land for us, but we're happy here, you know, on this side of the Jordan. Or does it maybe reflect something positive, like a kind of bravery that they, you know, said we can be a wall of defense for the rest of the nation on the other side of the Jordan, like a firstborn would, you know, kind of feels a responsibility to protect the rest well, I think it's probably both and more, and maybe it's not the same motivation for each of the tribes. But one thing I do know for sure is that it's ultimately between each of them and their God. You know, the Bible does not condemn them, and Moses does not condemn them. We need to be really careful here. This is something that is between these tribes and their God. And we need to recognize Two, that not everyone's portion in this life is supposed to look like your portion, even if we're talking about close family. You know, but you might be looking at your family and saying, why are you choosing that? Why are you making that choice? You're not going to experience the fullness of God's promises for you. If you do that, well, that might be true. But recognize that God has created each of us with a certain inheritance in mind. And it's a, it's a complicated thing. And so we can offer some advice, particularly when we are asked for it. But after their, their decision is made, just do what you can to stay connected as long as you are not in danger of being dragged down by them yourself. You know, offer a hand when it's needed and accept a hand from them too when you need it. In that way, you stay connected to them, right? We want to stay connected. After the decision is made, it's made, right? Move on. So lastly here, let's think about the cities of refuge in this context. What can we learn about exile from the cities of refuge? This topic has perhaps the clearest connection. We saw this connection with Midian and baseless hatred in the destruction of the Second Temple. We saw that connection to exile. But here with the cities of refuge, I think we have an even clearer connection to the idea of exile. The person who has accidentally killed and has to drop their, their whole life and flee to one of these cities, they are a person who is in an exile, right? They're exiled from their former life. And so what is this topic teaching us here? I think it's teaching us that God is watching how we extend grace to each other while we are in exile, because at least partly the way that we extend grace to each other is how he will extend grace to us. Through the commandments regarding cities of refuge, God gives us an opportunity to extend life to the one who God himself has brought to a place of falling, right? They, the axe handle flew off while I was chopping wood and... 
God forbid, it killed somebody. That's God who kind of led them into that place. And he's watching how we, you know, God has led all of us into that place. You know, we didn't choose for Adam to sin. We didn't choose to be born into this darkness. And so he's watching how we are going to treat someone who's in that position in our midst. And so I think maybe the the main way we should read these special cities is that they are both a teaching tool for grace, right? Teaching Israel, here's how you have grace for people in this situation. They're also a barometer for how Israel is extending grace inwardly. Are they doing this? Are they preserving these cities? Are they keeping the pathways and the roads open to these cities? Are they welcoming them? Are they providing a home for them and a new life for them once they are proven to be innocent in that city of refuge? Go out of your way, God is saying, to make a path back to life for this one who mostly, through no fault of their own, is in exile. And as you sacrifice for these people, watch how I will bless you by making the way to life open for you too. Well, we find in the Brit Hadashah reading for this portion, this very idea that God will mirror to us what we are doing to our brothers and sisters. For example, those in exile. In Mark 11, Yeshua says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses, right? What you are doing with your brother, he will do with you, right? Because he's mirroring to us what we need to see in our treatment of each other. Well, before we close with a word directly about Yeshua, it's time to bring out another salvation pattern progression from the portion in the story, uh, you know, from this Torah portion and this one with the story of the daughters of Zelophehad. In this topic, let's first notice that it's not an accident that this ending of Bamidbar, this, this kind of ending of the direct story of the formation of the nation um, and the Exodus journey, it details how five brides receive their inheritance. That's an important thing. This ending point of the Torah is about five brides receiving their inheritance. We are the bride. In the second half of the salvation pattern, the groom and the bride finally unite and and go about the business of becoming echad. And this is the true inheritance of the bride, right? It's not fully realized until the end. And here we have the story of women achieving their inheritance. And it is literally the final topic in these first four books of, you know, of the Torah. This is how these first four books end. The bride gets her inheritance. Well, this salvation pattern that emerges from the text here, um, we're going to go through the, the progression pretty quickly here, but it actually comes to us from Grant who taught it in his Joshua 16 and 17 teaching many years ago now. And so I'll I'll, I'll put it into my own words using some of Grant's translations for the names. But if you're interested, I'll link to that Grant teaching below the video. It's on the Beth Takun website under that Joshua series. And so, um, like I said, I'm not going to focus a lot on, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Really, the names speak for themselves here. Grant walks us through the salvation story through not only the names of the five da- daughters of Zelophehad, but also the male lineage that introduces them. So the five male ancestor names lead us through a kind of fall and a slide into a very low place. The names of the five daughters will walk us through the restoration and the coming up out of that that low place. And so the ancestors, those five male names, starting with the oldest, are Manasseh, Machir, Gilead, Hefer, and Zelophehad. Manasseh means forgetful, but it's not just, oops, I forgot, it's I choose to forget. And Really, this is the beginning of the fall. 
Makir, which is the second name, means sold, which is the point of separation in death. Gilead means a hard, stony region, and Hefer means pit, the uncomfortable, hard and stony place, and the confined life, the pit. That is the result of sin and death, right? We're experiencing the fullness of what this separation from God is bringing into our lives. Finally, Zalofahad literally means wounded echad, the idea of fracture. This is the point of greatest distance from God. Well, now we begin the climb with the five daughters. Makla means illness or disease. We can see this as identifying the sin problem. The disease problem is sin. Noah here means motion. It's not the same as Noah um, in, you know, the story of Noah and the flood. This Noah name here means motion or movement. And so once the problem is recognized, start moving, particularly move down on your knees in repentance. Hogla means partridge. And that seems a bit mysterious at first, but Grant points out that this The name also means little leaps, like a partridge apparently moves. And so we're starting to be able to make real progress, little leaps. Milka means journey, and it also means queen. Now, now that we've learned how to move, we embrace that healing journey, the journey that leads to an intimate marriage to the king, becoming a queen right? Two meanings of that name. Tirza, or Tirza, means beauty and pleasantness. Beauty is the result of two opposites coming together perfectly in balance. Tirza speaks to the end goal of that perfect echad, right? Echad means a oneness that's made of, of multiple parts, especially opposites. Well, that's what beauty is. And so, You thought it was just a list of 10 names. God's word is a wonder. We will never get to the bottom of it. Well, finally, let's turn now to Yeshua and let's ask where Yeshua is in our exile. Yeshua, the answer is, Yeshua is our leader in exile. Recall that exile is particularly associated with the portion of the calendar where the darkness comes to dominate the daylight the winter half of the year. And when did Yeshua come? He likely came near Sukkot in the seventh month, right? That's right when the the night becomes longer than the day. And it it says that he tabernacled among us, right? In allusion to Sukkot in the seventh month. He comes at the beginning of the darkness and he leads us through it. If coming to earth is a form of exile for our spirits, right? Right? each of our spirits comes into exile as it comes to earth, then who better to lead us through this exile than the one who also came to this place of exile, right? Yeshua came to this place and he leads us. Yeshua is our example of how we perfectly elevate every aspect of this material world. This is because it is through Yeshua that the Torah is fulfilled, right? I did not come to do away with the Torah or the prophets, but to fulfill it meaning that it is through Yeshua that the Torah is applied to all aspects of our mundane lives, our physical lives. The application of the Torah to its fullest extent. When we have a question about how to express truth and love, and right, love is the the heart of Torah, if when we have a question about some mundane aspect of our lives, some very physical aspect of our lives, we first ask that question that was once popular on bracelets when when I was younger, what would Jesus do, right? In Yeshua's example, we see the balanced walk, the walk that both embraces everything kosher, this physical world has to offer, but also with a spiritual intention in mind. Reach out and grab that physical stuff for spiritual purposes, for kingdom purposes. You know, he went to dine with a rich tax collector named Zacchaeus, this one who was surrounded by deep physicality. 
And he was criticized for that, but Yeshua didn't shy away from that physicality, that, that table that Zacchaeus set for him of food and wine. But he went into that place for a spiritual reason in service to the kingdom of God as he brought salvation to that home that, that day in Jericho. Yeshua allowed a jar in another story, a jar made of alabaster and filled with costly oil to be broken and poured upon him. And he was again criticized for that. He answered that what Mary had done was anoint him for burial, which was the grand spiritual purpose for that physical extravagance, that that use of the physical world, that great expense for the great spiritual purpose of, of anointing him for his death. Well, that's a lot to think about, and that's all for today. Thank you for listening. May God make us a people who follow Yeshua through the exile of this life, a people who take from his example and teachings how we can fully indwell this physical home he has given us so that we can elevate it into a home for God and transcend this exile. May we be a people of peace who pursues peace, particularly with our fellow travelers here. And may we fully rise up to be the people he has made us to be. And as we say, when finishing a book of the Torah, Kazakh, Kazakh, Vanit, Kazakh, be strong, be strong, and let us be strengthened. Shalom.